Well, good morning, everyone. I trust you enjoyed the service. Uh, I know it's not what we're used to. Again, we've said it over and over, but uh, we make the best of what God has given us, and I thank him that we're able to even do this. So this morning, right from the start, we're going to deal with the heavy text in our e- Easter series. See, we've already heard about the Savior who saves, the Savior who cares, and the Savior who forgives. Today, I'm going to be talking about the Savior who is punished. And it stands in contrast to the sermons before and the sermons that come after. Because it talks about punishment, which is something that we don't really like to talk about. I mean, take, for example, the pandemic we're experiencing right now with COVID-19. People are reminded that they're not immortal and they're faced with this reality that they could die. And how do they respond? We have people who could call out and question God, those who might seek him, and some might even curse him for this. The media, including social media, is quick to show us the gross underbelly of society. It doesn't take much to go on social media, and we all know that people are panic buying. They're taking everything off the shelves without thought for their neighbor. And now in some Facebook groups, you have people calling out others who are coming home from the province, and they're calling them out that they should be in isolation, whether it's warranted or not. We're quick to place our survival over that of our neighbor. And that screams in the face of the gospel that we preach. In fact, it screams in the face of what we're going to be talking about this morning, about the Savior who gave himself for us. He was not concerned about self-preservation on the cross, but Jesus only cared about us and our reconciliation with God. So if you have your Bibles with me or your phones open, you can open up to Matthew 27, verse 46. And it simply says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's it. That's the passage we're dealing with. Christ on the cross finds enough strength to cry out in a loud voice. And this is what he says. It's astounding but it can also be puzzling. Because if everything we believe is true, then how can Christ be asking a question? Really questioning God in this moment. In this moment, Jesus is not asking God why he's been forsaken. Because if Christ is truly God in the flesh, then why would he question what he's going through? You see, I put to you that Jesus knew what was going to happen and happened to him. In John chapter 18, verse 4, after Jesus had prayed in the garden and Judas had come to betray betray him, it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? See, Jesus knew that he was about to suffer. He didn't come blindly to this earth without knowing what he was to accomplish. No, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, and he So the question remains, if Jesus is not asking God a question, then what is he doing? You see, he was expressing in his anguish, in his anguish he was quoting Psalm 22. He was letting the people know that this Psalm of David was being fulfilled before their very eyes. In this cry of agony, 
he cried out in his humanity, not in question, but in, his, in expressing his suffering. If you read the psalm, you'll know some striking similarities between what David says and what Christ is experiencing in this moment. For instance, you'll see passages like verses 7 and 8, which says, all who, mock, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. If you go down further, you'll also see verses 16 to 18, which also says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my, for my clothing they cast lots. This perfectly describes what has happened to Christ already and what is happening. His cry of agony is saying to the people, this scripture is, filled, is being fulfilled before your very eyes. This moment in history has always been planned. Nothing in this moment, as horrible as it is, has caught Christ off guard. In regards to this moment on the cross, John Piper says, but when you are hanging on the cross, you don't say, oh, I think I'm going to quote some scripture here. It is either in you as the very essence of your messianic calling, or it isn't. And if it is in you, then you give vent at the worst moment of your life with the appointment of your father scripted in Psalm 22. This was a part of who Christ was. He knew Psalm 22, and he knew it was about him. If anything, in this moment, he was not questioning God. He was affirming that he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, our Savior. He is the one who has come in our place so that we might be saved. He is the one who has been foretold, and he is the one that we need. Now, if we, we say if he's not questioning God, but affirming his Messiahship, then we have to look deeper into this and see what was actually happening in this moment. Why choose this moment to reference this psalm? And this is where we'll see my first point, which is Jesus is the Savior who bore our sins. Again, it was, this in, it was in this moment that Jesus cried out in agony, and that's because he took our sin upon himself. In this cry of both spiritual and physical pain, it signals, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Psalm 22 even describes Jesus as a worm and as being despised by mankind. You see, he suffered tremendously in this moment. God the Father made Jesus sin for our sake. It was for our sake that Christ was nailed to the cross that he was whipped, that he was beaten, and that he was spit upon. It was for our sake that he cried out in this moment that we might know that he did indeed take our sin upon himself. And in taking that sin on himself, he became a curse for us, as Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
Jesus took our sin on himself, becoming a curse for our sake. It was and continues to be the ultimate sacrifice. Christ suffered immensely in, in, in the physical sense, but he also suffered immensely in the spiritual sense. Just think of the heaviness of the burdens of our sins, past, present, and future. All our sins were laid upon him in this moment. The Son of God, God himself in the flesh became sin. It is in this moment that Jesus suffers for us in bearing our sins. Right now, we're in the middle of a pandemic that none of us have ever experienced or seen before in our lifetimes. There is great fear, anxiety, and some people even are panicking. And as a church, we are separated and unable to meet regularly. Yet, we serve a God who knows what it means to suffer and experience grief. It's in these moments we need to trust in God. And in regards to this passage, we need to rest in the fact that our Savior suffered so that we may live. He took our sin, our punishment, and suffered for our benefit. We don't serve a God who doesn't know our sufferings, but we have one who has lived through them and who has taken them on willingly. And this is a key point I think we need to get right, that Jesus willingly took on our sin. He was not a separate third party. He was not a son who was forced to suffer and die, but he was a willing part of the plan. The father and son did not work separately, but were in unison in love to carry out the mission of salvation for mankind. You see, what the father poured out, the son willingly received. And I want you to really get that. What the father poured out in this moment, the son willingly took on. John Stott, the author of The Cross of Christ, says, We must never make Christ the object of the Father's punishment, or the Father the object of Christ's persuasion. For both the Father and Christ were subjects, not objects, in taking the initiative together to save sinners. It is Jesus who is God in the flesh who willingly took our sins for us. He did what we could not, offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. You see, before this moment, our sins were placed on an animal by the laying out of hands as a symbolic gesture, and the animal would then be killed in our place. None of these sacrifices would ever fully pay the price for sin and only ever held off the wrath of God, bringing temporary reconciliation. There has always been a need for blood, for sacrifice, for the forgiveness of sins. I want to take a second and look at the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. On this day, the Day of Atonement, there would be a sacrifice on this day for all the sins of Israel for the whole year. They would take two goats and a bull, and the bull would be burned as sacrifice for the priest, and then one goat would be offered in the same way for the nation of Israel. And this, we can start this description, verse six, chapter 16, verse 15. 
It says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood inside the veil and do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so, and so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells in the midst of their uncleanness. These animals had to be killed and their blood sprinkled over the altar so that there could be forgiveness. Blood has always been necessary to make atonement and animals had to be offered as a substitute for people. Now the second goat that was mentioned would be used as a scapegoat. So if we go down further to verse 21, it says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself into a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The two goats were not sep two separate sacrifices, but were instead both parts of the same sacrifice. T.J. Crawford suggests that one exhibited the means and the other the results of the atonement. One goat was sacrificed, showing the need for blood for atonement. A life had to be given. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. The second goat showed the effects of the sacrifice, that their sins and iniquities would be cast away from them for the year. This atonement came at great cost. And Jesus paid that cost for all time. The sacrifice on the cross covers more than just a year. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It covers all of our sins, every one of them. We cannot walk out of here, sin, and simply lose our salvation. Christ paid the price for all of our sins throughout all of our lives. And as we are faithful to repent of these sins and to turn to him, he will be faithful to forgive us of those sins. And this brings me to my second point. So Jesus is the Savior who bore our sins and took God's wrath. See, sin has always needed atonement, and it has always been the subject of God's wrath. God is a holy God and must take action against sin, or else he will stop being holy and thus stop being God. Sin cannot go unpunished, and it cannot be forgiven without sacrifice. As I said earlier, these sacrifices were in place of people. They would symbolically again lay their hands on the head of a sacrifice, thereby saying that this animal would be a substitute to die in place of them for their sins. We often like to gloss over these parts of the Bible where sacrifices are described in detail, and it, makes, it can make us uncomfortable. 
and so it should. The requirements for the atonement of our sins should never make us comfortable. We should never grow comfortable for what, for what our sin requires to happen for forgiveness. Whether that be the sacrifices in the Old Testament or the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You see, crucifixion was not a celebrated act. It was taboo to speak about those who had been crucified. And the soldiers who were performing the act had perfected the art of killing. Nabil Qureshi says, The cross is one of the most vicious, torturous, and effective means of depravity that humanity has ever created. The point of crucifixion wasn't just to kill the person. It was to kill them as painfully as possible. The Romans had perfected this art, which is why the cross was such an abhorrent sight. Nothing good had ever come out of someone being crucified. The pain of the nails piercing your hands and feet. The pain of then having to lift yourself up in order to breathe. And on the back of 39 lashes, no less. It's just unimaginable for us, the suffering and pain that was happening in this moment. And Christ suffered physically. He suffered spiritually, took our punishment, bore the weight of all our sins, our lust, our hatred, murder, pride, drug abuse, and lies were all placed on him in this moment. Our sins, again, from past, present, and future were on him. He bared it all. And the bearing of those sins required the pouring out of God's wrath onto his son. This, in this moment, this is God bearing God's wrath. When we question how a loving God could pour out his wrath onto his only son, we are thinking in earthly terms. We don't think in terms of the Trinity, meaning when we ask this question, we don't think about it as God the Father pouring out his wrath Onto God the Son who is willingly receiving it, which is what is happening. And this has been the plan the whole time. God planned from the beginning of time to save humanity in this way. And in the midst of this pandemic, it can be easy for us to lose sight of things around us. Yet we need to rest in the fact that God is in control. If God planned this from, from the beginning, this horrible moment, then God is in control now. And to, to quote Dave Drover, another intern like me, he said, if he was in control on the cross, then he is in control now. If Jesus, if God was in control on this moment when he's been crucified and bearing our sins and the wrath, then he's certainly in control now. We serve a God, indeed, we serve a Savior who knows what it feels like to suffer and feel forsaken. He knows all too well the physical and spiritual sufferings of this world. So take hope today. Let your faith in your Savior be renewed. We don't serve a God who is caught off guard by this, nor do we serve a God who does not understand how we feel in these moments. 
And it was, it's, it's in this moment that we see the pinnacle of God's wrath being poured out onto the Son for our sake. It's in this moment that Christ cries out and we see that there is true forsakenness. The Son has become forsaken for it's in this moment He became our sin and suffered the penalty for our sake. Let this sink in. Christ was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. God cannot look upon sin. So it was in this moment that God turned his back from his son. We cannot ever fully hope to grasp what this forsakenness meant or how it plays out within God. For there are some things about God that are just too deep for us to comprehend. But we do, however, know some things. We know that Jesus did not stop being God in this moment. The Trinity was not separated, nor was it severed at the cross. Jesus was and still is God. We know that there was true forsakenness on the cross, and that this cry of Psalm 22 was a cry of anguish. And I, I have searched and searched, but I have learned to be content with this mystery of God. As John Stott says again, whatever happened on the cross in terms of God forsakenness was voluntarily accepted by both in the same holy love which made atonement necessary. Likewise, Spurgeon said, I think I can understand the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As they are written by David in the 22nd Psalm. But the same words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When uttered by Jesus on the cross, I cannot comprehend. So I shall not pretend to be able to explain them. There are some things about God, because indeed he is a great God, that sometimes we just can't fully grasp. But in dealing with God's wrath, there's another passage that we have to tackle. It's a passage that foretells that Jesus would have to suffer for us. I'm talking about Isaiah 53. Let me read it out for you. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we, esteem, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was his chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. 
yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and ill judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And although he had, no, although he had no, done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the for the transgressors. This is a messianic passage, and is related directly to the life and person of Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus came onto the scene, we're told that He must suffer for us, and that by Him we have peace, healing, and righteousness. In this chapter alone, we can see that Christ bore our sin, that he was smitten, afflicted, and stricken by God, that, his, that he took this punishment willingly, and that through this, we can be made righteous. All of these things can be and should be applied to the life and death of Jesus. But what we need to deal with here is verse 10 where it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The words here mean simply that it pleased God to crush him. So how do we deal with that? What do you mean it pleased God to crush his servant? First, this is not God getting a sick type of pleasure out of punishing Jesus. That's not what this text is saying. If you'll notice, the passage is saying that the suffering servant, Jesus, is bearing our sins and the punishment for a good reason. Verse 11 says that through his suffering, he will be made righteous and make many righteous. When I discipline my daughter, I don't take joy in it. I don't get this weird sense of pleasure. And I don't, and I don't sit around waiting for her to make a mistake just so I can discipline her and get joy out of it. However, it pleases me to discipline her in the sense that I know it is for her own good. And although God was not disciplining Jesus, he was pleased to crush him because it was for a good thing. It, this, it came from the same love that has put this whole plan in motion since again the beginning of time. God's plan saved mankind from the beginning, which is why he was pleased to do this. The plan, no matter how horrible or how harsh it was, 
had to be accomplished so that we might be saved by our faith in Christ. Now this brings me to uh, my final point. The Savior who bore our sins and took God's wrath so that we could be saved. Just think, all of this that I've described was done so that you, so that I could be saved and no longer be an enemy of God. Christ's righteousness becomes ours because of what he suffered on the cross. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21 when I read, For our sake he became sin, he made him sin who knew no sin. What that verse finishes with, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sins he bore, the wrath he suffered, it was done for us. You were the reason he had to suffer and die. But you were also the reason that he did it. His holy love for us can be seen in this sacrifice. We are saved by our faith in him. And indeed, we must choose to place our faith in him. For it is God and God alone who saves. An author describes this as God's demand on God and God's meeting of his own demand. Meaning that God's demand of justice meant that his wrath had to be met. God then voluntarily took on his own wrath, suffering the penalties of sin, and then offers us salvation as a result. Rabbi Duncan once asked his class, do you know what Calvary was? What? 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 And it said he replied with tears in his eyes, saying, it was damnation, and he took it lovingly. Likewise, John Piper says, to be forsaken by God is a cry of the damned, and he was damned for us. And though he was not truly damned, he did experience the real effects of damnation, just as he suffered the effects of becoming sin, which is forsakenness. All of this so that we could be saved. So how precious does that make our salvation? Think of something that was given to you. Maybe a heirloom or some, a, a gift from a very close friend. How much do you treasure that? Now, think of your salvation and that all that was done to accomplish it outside of yourself. How much more should we treasure that gift of salvation? God bore his own wrath of his own accord for our sake, for you. Again, how precious is this gift? Romans 5 says that we have been justified by the blood of Christ and that we will be saved from God's wrath. Ephesians 2 says that we have been saved through faith and that it is indeed a free gift of God. All of this was planned from the very start. And all parties involved did so willingly and lovingly. Now remember that I said that Christ was referencing Psalm 22 when he cried out in anguish. Let me read you the end 
of that psalm. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The end of the psalm just screams victory. It says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And kingship belongs to the Lord. And it ends with he has done it. There is victory in this moment of agony. In the midst of his suffering, Christ knew how all of this would play out. He knew what his death would accomplish and what he would have to suffer and go through. This is shown to us at the end, as I just read Psalm 22, the end of Isaiah 53. And this is why the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To the world, this is foolishness. It doesn't make sense that a man could say, on a cross could save us. But it was God in the flesh, the Son of God who hung on that cross, motivated by his love for us. Because of his love for us, God the Son bore our sins, took the wrath of God the Father, all that we might be made alive and then be seen as righteous in the eyes of God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9-11 to 11 says, in this, is, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, propitiation is a fancy way of saying that Christ was the atonement for our guilt, our sins. It was by love that this was accomplished for us, that we might be saved through the death and suffering of Jesus Christ. If we know Jesus, then he is our propitiation and we are now reconciled with God and looked on as righteous. All thanks to God himself. So what do we do with all of this today? I ask that you treasure your salvation and know that God is in control. He planned for your salvation from the beginning. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. Let others know of the hope that you have and the hope that they can have. This world has very quickly turned into a terrifying place for us. However, we can take this time and show love to others. Tell them of your faith. Check in on them and make sure they're doing okay. Show them the love of God. 
and explain to them what was accomplished for them on the cross. Man has sin. God must judge that sin. Jesus took that judgment, and man is now able to respond with faith in Jesus. The threat of the coronavirus looms around every corner. But know that if your faith is in Christ, then you are saved. Again, we have been made righteous in the eyes of God because of Jesus on the cross. The coronavirus, fear, and anxiety can never take that away from you. Do you, do you question if God cares? Do you wonder if he has forsaken us and may, maybe left us to suffer and die? Well, we serve a God who knows how it feels to be forsaken. I've said it earlier, and I will say it again, that he was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. Jesus did not suffer on the cross just to leave us on our own. The whole point of him coming was to be a sacrifice for our sins and bear God's wrath so that we could be saved. See how precious this truth is. God did not abandon you to your sin, nor has he abandoned us now in the midst of this pandemic. A virus like COVID-19 or any other disease can never undo what God has done. Now, Journey to the Cross is a devotional we've been doing as a church during the time of Lent. Let me read you a part from day 18. It says, Jesus suffered more than anyone has ever suffered. Even if we experience the wrath of God against our sins, that would still not approach the degree of suffering that Jesus endured. He had never experienced sin or separation from God, yet he bore the entirety of his people's sin on the cross. No one has ever suffered like Jesus. It seems as though we haven't, well, we do, we have an update from the government every day, and it seems like things are just getting worse. Again, this can cause us alarm. We can grow anxious with the events of the world. But none of these can take our salvation. But perhaps just a little more comforting is that we, ha we have a God who knows our suffering. Therefore, I ask that you rest in your salvation in a restless world. That you give hopeless to the you give hope to the hopeless in times of suffering. Treasure your salvation and let it shine in a world that has now grown all the more dark. For Jesus is the Savior who bore our sins, took God's wrath, so that we could be saved. Will you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for that gift that you've given us, Lord. Jesus, that you offered yourself willingly to take on the wrath of God so that we might be saved. God, in this time, in this world that we find ourselves now, Lord, may we rest in that fact, in that truth, that not only are we saved, but that we have a God who has suffered himself and knows what it means to, be, to suffer. 
Lord, may we share hope with those around us. May we be that beacon of light in this city, O oh God. And may we be the voice that cries out and says that no, God has not abandoned us. May we help turn people to you. Holy Spirit, may you work in the lives of the people in this city. Father, as we go about our week, however that may look, whether we're just in our houses, may we call and check up on people. May we have conversations with them, conversations of truth and of hope and of life. May we speak into their lives, oh God. Lord, for those of us that follow you, may we all again understand what it means to be saved to understand what it is that was exactly accomplished on that cross. That our salvation comes from you and you alone, that we just must place our faith in you and trust in you, O oh God. I pray that truth will be made real to all of us today and to everyone who is watching, O oh God. I just ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.